Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will examine the drivers behind recent momentum across multiple asset classes and the macro tailwinds that are fueling investor sentiment. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Jason, welcome back. Great to be with you as always and looking forward forward to our conversation today. It's good to be here. We're recording this podcast on a Wednesday, so when I reference yesterday's pullback, I'm referring to Tuesday, though U.S. equities, aside from yesterday, they have staged an impressive and, for that matter, record-setting run over the past week or so. So, Jason, what factors have been driving this momentum and investor sentiment? Well, last week in particular was was a good week for risk assets, or really assets in general. And you could say in terms of you know the market drivers, the major market drivers that we would focus on, all broke in a favorable direction. So first, um, you had the Fed, but also other central banks, including the Bank of England and the Reserve Bank of Australia. You have meetings last week, and they all ended up being you know, dovish or kind of you know short of expectations in terms of like you know talking about rate hikes. So it was a you more combination than the market was expecting, especially the prior week. There was talks from other central banks, including officials at the Fed, sort of implying that they have to become more aggressive because inflation is being elevated. So the market uh, two weeks ago had moved pretty aggressively to start to price in, you know, interest rate hikes as soon as next year. Last week, you know, the central banks essentially sort of almost dialed that back a little bit. So that was kind of a, a positive market catalyst that you see the central banks being a little bit more on the dovish side. We also had good growth data throughout the week. Uh, on Friday, with the the non-farm jobs payroll numbers that came out that exceeded expectations for the number of new jobs created in October. The prior two months had revised upwards. So in combined, we exceeded the expectations of about 450,000 new jobs by close to 200,000. Um, you know, other data was you know strong in terms of you know, you know wage growth. You know, the only sort of negative was there wasn't really a pickup in the participation rates. So uh, we're not sort of necessarily drawing back people back into labor force. Um, but other data throughout the week, including the, the ISM sort of manufacturing and services indices, all still at very elevated levels, above 60. And, you know, for historical context, they're tend to be above 60, you know, less than 5% of the time. And they've been at that level for really much of the year. So the economic data was strong. The central banks were dovish. You know, even on the sort of the pandemic COVID front, we got you know, positive news in terms of, you know, treatments for people who do get COVID from, you know, Pfizer in terms of developing a, a drug that can be taken with very high efficacy. Merck has received approval or moving forward to be able to do something similar, which again is a further sign that the pandemic should be able to kind of stay relatively contained. So you added a lot. There's a lot of things to kind of go right for, for the markets, uh, in addition to earnings, which have been very strong recently. But again, you know, you know, the final sort of leg of the third quarter earnings season continue to be sort of a positive, you know, overall. So you add all up. It was a good week, you know, from a macro perspective for the risk markets and, and that was reflected in the performance. Okay, so quite a few factors in play. And just to recap, Jason, you mentioned everything from central bank policy to macro data points to COVID-19 remedies to uh, positive corporate earnings. Do those factors, Jason, also explain the recent outperformance of other asset classes, which could be characterized as the everything rally? And can comparisons of this broader trading activity be drawn to recent periods? So by everything rally, what I mean is if you look across almost all different asset classes, including you know fixed income from you know treasury bonds, muties to riskier you know, you know credit across equities, and then again into you know commodity things like that, 
Um, if we look to just the performance for last week, you know, the five days, you know, almost everything was up. The only thing that, that wasn't, didn't have a positive return was, you know, oil, which was down a little bit, and some industrial metals. But bonds were up, uh, you know, even with the good economic news. Uh, and they were up because, you know, the central banks were a little bit more dovish. Rates had also moved quite a bit, so some of that was being sort of dialed back in terms of future expectations, which meant that both on the, the equity side of your portfolio, but also the bond side of your portfolio, everything was up. So that's kind of what we mean by kind of everything rally. It was a little bit reminiscent of, you know, really much of, of 2020, once we hit the bottom of, uh, you know, the sell-off during the dip, the pandemic in March of, of 2020, you know, at some point, everything was just sort of rallying higher because you saw, you know, valuations, you know, fell, whether it was equities, you know, credit spreads, things like that, everything moved higher, you know, for all of last year, or at least, you know, from kind of April onwards into early this year as well. Uh, and so it had that sort of reminiscence of, like, everything is doing well, you know, it's whatever you own, it's going to go a little bit higher. Uh, you know, this is not the same situation where, like, the valuations were very cheap and everything had to kind of move or sort of recovered. Uh, we're not certainly at the same kind of stage of the cycle, and valuations are in a different story. But it did look a little bit, uh, you know, similar in terms of everything kind of doing well. Uh, the other thing that was interesting, I'd say, if you look at the market performance, you know, one of the best performers for the week was small cap equities. Uh, they were up about 6%, whereas the overall, you know, S&P 100 was up around, you know, 2.5%. Uh, and small caps had been lagging for much of the year. Like they did, they had a great year last year. They started the year strong. And from roughly mid-March onwards, they were pretty much sideways. And it was only on Monday of last week, November 1st, that they kind of retouched the highs they set back on March 17th, whereas the S&P 100 had been setting multiple all-time new highs throughout the spring, summer, and into the fall. So finally, kind of small caps caught up. Small caps are going to be more economically sensitive. They tend to do well early in the cycle, sort of, as the growth outlook is kind of really recovering and you kind of get that reflation. So the fact that you had an environment where interest rates fell, which generally speaking, we've seen when that happens, tech stocks, growth stocks kind of do well. And they did, but small caps did even better. So when we think about the drivers of the markets, whether it's kind of better growth news, inflation news, or something on the central bank side, certainly for the past two months, the focus has been very much on inflation and whether we get reflation or stagflation or something else, what is the central bank response? Last week, that kind of broke out a little bit when we saw small caps outperform as if there's a little bit of view that actually growth is going to be fine. We're not going to stagnate. Uh, and you saw a little bit of that, so those dynamics take place in the market with cyclical stocks also doing well. This is not going to be sustained for a year like we did last year. But I think it was interesting as a bit of a shift in terms of what's going on in the marketplace as opposed to what was really driving it for the prior you know, one to two months. So, Jason, to single out recent central bank activity, decisions, commentary, can a case be made that markets are not fully pricing in the dovish tilt? Well, if we look at most clearly what the market was priced in terms of Fed rate hikes, uh, prior to last week or the start of last week, you could say it would have been almost like two and a half, even slightly more hikes for the Fed next year, beginning as soon as June. That's dialed back a little bit. It's still two full hikes, so there's a little bit of marginal kind of you know, pulling back. But if you look at what the Fed is saying, and sort of at least it's sort of, you know, the doll plot, which is, you know, any perfect guide for the Fed's intentions, the Fed is still leaning towards either not hiking next year or like wait until the very end. So the market is certainly pricing in more than what the Fed is expecting, maybe a little bit less than, you know, beyond the start of last week. Um, so there is this, you know, this kind of gap between the two. There is an element also of the market sort of pricing in, you know, you could sort of perceive it this way as a bit of a risk of a policy error, meaning that the Fed, you know, it could be too slow in terms of hiking rates. Uh, and when they do finally start, they have to be more aggressive because inflation stays contained. 
And one of the ways you can sort of interpret that is if you look at the shape of the yield curve, what's been happening is the, the difference between, say, 10-year yields uh, and 2-year yields or 30-year yields and 5-year yields, that has been sort of getting lower. So the curve is kind of flattening out and in terms of the difference between the different interest rates at different horizons. A, f- a curve that's flattening tends to happen sort of later in the cycle, and it's you know, sometimes it's kind of viewed as a sign of you know future growth is going to moderate, and it's flattening because the expectation is the market's going to raise rates, so your two-year yields go up, but later on down the line, eventually that's going to stop, and they're going to have to cut rates in the future, and that's why you know, a ten-year yield or a thirty-year yield doesn't actually move that much higher. You now we can read too much into one week's price action, and there's a lot going on in the bond market still with the Fed doing QE in terms of supply that's coming from the Treasury. So there's a lot of noisy signals, and you don't want to overinterpret it. You know, but that's the sort of, you know, collectively what it would suggest is the market's a little bit concerned is that they think the Fed is kind of behind the curve. You know, they're pricing more hikes than the Fed is saying they're going to do. When they do have to hike, they're going to have to hike a little more aggressively, and that's going to close the economy, you know, or slow the economy even more than, than the Fed would like. Uh, and that's where the risk of the policy era comes in. So I think that's where the disconnect is between the two. Um, but I think there's still the, the view, and then, you know, what the Fed and other central banks showed last week is if they're uncertain about the inflation and growth environment, and so especially the labor market environment, they're going to err on the side of being a little more cautious and being behind the curve and then have to hike rates then versus being more aggressive and having in hiking rates and find out, well, actually, they were correct that inflation is going to be transitory and it's going to take a while to get maximum employment. They'd rather have the latter scenario and have to kind of play catch up than go too soon and, and sort of kill the recovery before it um, has a chance to fully play out. Thank you for the clarity on the central bank. So moving back into the recent market momentum that we've seen, as has been the case in times past, these upside market moves, they can yield speculation about bubbles forming. Now, is there any evidence to suggest that such a scenario is playing out here? And is investor euphoria a constructive catalyst for one to reduce their market exposure? Well, first on the question of you know, market bubbles, you know, not for the overall market. I think it might surprise people to, to realize that the valuation of the S&P 500 is actually probably slightly lower today than it was back at the beginning of January when there was also bubble talk back then. And the reason is that, you know, the performance this year has been enti- driven entirely by earnings far exceeding expectations. You know, they're roughly 18 to 20 percent higher than for this year and going forward than what was expected back in the beginning of January. Uh, and so all the movement has been sort of market pricing and this, this better earnings outlook. So even though the market is a lot higher, it's, you know, the S&P is over 20% higher, it hasn't gotten more expensive. And you know, bond yields have gone a little bit, but on a relative basis, they still look, you know, relatively attractive in a fixed income. So on a broad basis, I'd say no. There are certainly some pockets, again, of, of maybe areas that are getting a little bit more expensive. You know, these areas that are, you know, maybe more growth-oriented, certainly more speculative nature. Uh, you, you know, we can look at areas like, you know, cryptocurrency certainly have been an issue in the past. So there are pockets of that materializing. You know, it's important to also realize that while sentiment could be, you know, quite, you know, getting quite positive, you know, I don't think it's euphoric yet because there's still, I think, you know, concerns about inflation. There's still people who have doubts about the macro outlook. So we're not there yet. But even if we're at an elevated level of sentiment and people are quite bullish, the markets can stay that way for a period of time before you kind of get to the point where, like, this is just, you know, too much going on. Um, so it's not a great timing signal, so is what I sort of, you know, bottom line. Like, people being really optimistic is not necessarily a counter signal to say, well, now is the time to de-risk. 
it's different if you're there's a lot of extreme pessimism and valuations that are reflected. Then you could say, well, too much negative news is priced in, and historically that's been a you know good time to kind of buy. The same isn't true on the upside. It tends to be not as good a predictor. If you know the you know sentiment is quite positive, it can stay that way for like another six months, year, even you know a, a couple of years. Um, what is going on though is is you're seeing or we're seeing investors who were more cautious, you know, at the end of the summer, back in September. Where there was a lot of risk events kind of you know, coming up, including the you know, debt ceiling issues, uh, you know, concerns about what the Fed would do, what was going on with China and Evergrande. And so there was a lot of sort of dying back of risk exposure. As we've gotten through that period, as we've gotten through earnings, which have shown that you know, companies have been able to handle higher input costs quite well and it hasn't impacted margins, people started to kind of add risk back. And particularly on the retail side, if you look at sort of the, you know, the fund flows, it's quite positive. But also looking at you know, option activity, you know, people are using options to get exposure to the markets. Uh, and buying call options in particular. Uh, and some of the volumes we're seeing there are, are unprecedented, and even relative to, like, you know, buying upside you know, optionality versus hedging and buying sort of puts to protect the downside, that ratio is is pretty elevated in terms of how much people are willing to kind of play for the upside as opposed to playing the downside. And if you look at the horizon of these call options, it's not over the next three months, you know, it's over the next, you know, two two to three weeks. Like, it's a very short horizon if people are kind of really, really kind of, speculating in the near term the markets are going to go higher which when we get that kind of activity it does leave it vulnerable to sort of you know any sort of negative news or headline to lead to a bit of a pullback you know this happened in you know august of last year where we saw a big run up in august some of it due to heavy option activity you know and then very quickly we had a bit of an unwind and then things kind of bounce back within a, you know uh, within a month so it wouldn't surprise me if we get some you know, some sort of negative news or something that would cause the market to pull back as this position unwinds at least a little bit you get a little bit of further pullback by which I mean maybe three, four percent, but there's so much money still out there. Investors are still positive that adult, you know, that rally or that sell-off will be bought back, and things will continue to higher. So if you're looking three to six months, definitely more upside. But you know, there could be volatility in the next week or two, or, or you know, by early December, just because of some of the positioning and how much markets have moved in a, in a pretty short time period. Um, through the end of Friday, the S&P was up eight percent in the course of four weeks, which is a pretty sizable move in a short period of time. So there is a bit of vulnerability to some technically induced pullbacks you know, in the very near future. But I think any of those would be, you know, probably be bought and would be buying opportunities. Well, Jason, very insightful conversation as always. So thank you for dropping by top of the morning to shed some light on the drivers behind recent market momentum and sharing with us on a near-term basis what the path forward might look like for investors and how they should think about responding accordingly. So thank you again for the time, Jason, and we'll look forward to picking back up with the conversation again soon. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including a recent blog authored by Jason, which ties right into our conversation today. Uh, The title is Normalization Continues. So for clients of UBS, you can contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about the topics covered on today's podcast or if you would like to receive a copy of Jason's blog directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, 
Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.